You can have a seat wherever you may be. Thank you so much uh, for being here. My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity to teach uh, God's Word today. Uh, we're in a series on Revelation called Revelation. And uh, we're in week uh, two of this series. And just a quick uh, housekeeping note and a reminder that we've got all hands on deck with this series. And knowing that, you know, studying the book of Revelation, you're bound to have some questions. You can send those questions in just by jumping on iwant.info. You can submit your questions there. And we have a, a, a weekly podcast that releases on Tuesday that we're uh, tackling some of those questions there in that format. Also on iwant.info, you can see an additional resources page, a, a reading plan uh, through the book of Revelation with uh, some additional resources if you so choose to dive into some of those. Um, but I'm not sure about you, but my wife and I, one of our favorite things to do together is to watch movies. And some of my favorite movies uh, are the Batman movies, okay? And they're not some of my wife's favorite movies, but she bears with them through them from time to time. And my favorite Batman movie movie is Batman Begins. And we can talk later about why you think it is the worst, the best, or somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I'm going to tell you why it's my favorite. It's because it's an origin story. It's how Batman becomes Batman. Or to say it better, more correctly, is how Bruce Wayne becomes Batman. And some of the opening scenes of, of that movie, we get Bruce Wayne being beaten to a pulp by his mentor, Raj Al Ghul. And Raj Al Ghul is trying to get Bruce Wayne to figure out what is your main motivation in doing all this? Or to say it like he says it, what do you fear? Right? He's like getting ready in the face. And he keeps saying it over and over again. I'll only do it once. Uh, but he's trying to get him to figure out like why are you doing this? What has got you to this place? And what's taking you to the next place? And we get a flashback in, in Bruce Wayne's mind to a younger Bruce Wayne. And we see these key moments that have shaped him into who he is and to where he is going. And there's one key moment that has shaped him more profoundly than probably all the others. We get this scene of young Bruce Wayne with his mom and dad at the opera. They're all dressed super nice. And what's happening on stage, it scares young Bruce Wayne. So he tugs on his dad's jacket sleeve and uh, he, the, Bruce Wayne's dad escorts the family out the side door into the alley where they're leaving. And the mom's confused. Uh, uh, Bruce Wayne's mom is like, hey, wh what are we doing? The opera's not over yet. And the dad just simply says, that's enough opera for one night, right? And so they, they continue on. A series of events basically happen where there's a mugging and then Bruce Wayne's mom and dad both get shot and killed. And that moment in Bruce Wayne's life has shaped him so dramatically that it's changed his trajectory for the rest of his life and ultimately will lead him to become Batman. It, may, it makes me step back and think every time I watch the movie and even think about it, like, what are the moments in my life, for better or worse, that have shaped me into who I am and where I'm going in my life? And we've all had these moments. We've all had moments in our life that have shaped us into who we are and where we're going. And for John, the author of the book of Revelation, we get an insight into one of these pivotal moments of his life towards the end of it that will shape him for the rest of his life. Now let's dive in. Revelation chapter one, if you're following along, the best way to do that in the Northridge Notes app, or you can just, we'll camp out for the entirety of our time in Revelation chapter one, starting in verse nine. It says this, 
I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, Drew told us last week of, that John is the author, but we need to know more, all right? Who is John is the, is the question that I'm proposing. Who is John? Well, John was one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles. He's the writer of the gospel of John, the fourth book in our New Testament, and even more than that, though, we need to know a little bit more. He was born, his birthday is somewhere between 6 and 10 AD. He was born in Bethsaida, Galilee, during the rule and reign of the Roman Empire. And Revelation is written about a few years before he dies, approximately around 96 AD. His death date is ranged around 100 AD. So that means he died around age 93 to 94 Years old. He is buried in Ephesus, which was during the rule and reign of, you guessed it, the Roman Empire. And in this opening phrase of verse 9, he says, It's I, John, your brother. Well, he's not writing to a bunch of people who are his biological siblings. He's talking about the family of faith. He, he could even be saying that about us, right? He's our brother. But he has a specific group of people in mind. Who, who are those people? Well, look at verse 11 with me of Revelation chapter one. It says, which says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Drew told us last week that we're not gonna dive into these specific letters to these churches, which can be found in Revelation two and three. We did an in-depth on-site a study of those a few years ago. Uh, that's a series called Seven that you can find on Ratna Media, uh, YouTube, or even our church website. And John, to these churches that he has in mind, these specific people that make up the churches in these cities, these specific people that he has in mind, he calls himself not only their brother, but also, look at, continue looking at verse nine, a companion in the suffering a companion in the suffering. That word suffering is the literal word tribulation, which literally just means painstaking or the suffering that's being caused. And this is a word that's used all throughout the New Testament. It's as if the picture that gets painted by the New Testament in the gospels, the letters, is that, that every time that the kingdom of God advances in the world, that the kingdom of good, the kingdom of light advances, that darkness starts pushing back a little harder, that the boil starts getting a little turned up, a little hotter. The pressure begins to increase. That will one day cultivate in the great tribulation that you may know of if you're familiar with the book of Revelation. But the question that we have to ask is, where does this suffering that John is specifically talking about coming from? Well, it's coming from the world leaders, but I want to show you on a map specifically where it is coming at, where John's at, and where the people he's talking about are at. So we, we saw that John said that he was on the island of Patmos. You see the flag in the bottom corner all the way down right here. Patmos is a prison island uh, that's about 22 miles off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
This red line that you see like this, it starts at Patmos and then goes from Ephesus. And if you just go back to verse 11, read it, this is literally the order at which these churches are listed. This is the first century mailing route, all right? The Bible's super practical. John says, send letters to these churches and just follow the normal mailing route. And this is what it is. And John was a pastor in the city of Ephesus for a number of years. And he has faced immense suffering. Most scholars believe that in recent days as a pastor, that John has witnessed or heard word of Paul, Peter, and Timothy all being killed. So the church in Ephesus has seen this vacuum of leadership. Three key leaders dead, one of them on a prison island. So to say that they've experienced trouble is to say, yeah, they definitely have experienced trouble. And this is the context at which John writes in. That's where he's at. He's a pastor. He's seen immense trouble happening in his life. But where on a map is helpful to us and also where on a timeline in history is also helpful for us to learn where John sits to understand the emphasis and the importance of what he says. Notice that I pointed out that John was born around 6 to 10 uh, B.C. Well, the first Roman emperor comes to power in 31 B.C., which is Augustus. He reigns until 14 A.D., which means John was a youngling, a toddler, during the very first rule of a Roman emperor. Augustus was the first Roman emperor. He, he ruled great. He set the standards for all other emperors that would come into power, and he died of old age. We fast forward through nine other key leaders in the Roman Empire until we get to the guy who is behind Revelation. Here's a picture of the Roman Emperor Domitian. I, I drew this picture myself just for you guys. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. But a modern artist has taken the statue that you see on one side and said, okay, maybe this is what this guy would look like. I think they gave him way too kind of eyes. And let me tell you why. So Domitian came into power in 81 AD and reigned until 96 AD. And this guy's a narcissist. He's ridiculous to say the least. That he was one of the first Roman emperors that didn't just desire honor to be paid to him, but worship. That he set up temples in his own name. How narcissistic do you have to be in order to set up temples in your own name? The minority view is that Nero was the Roman emperor behind um, this book, but Nero only persecuted Christians in the city of Rome where Domitian systematized and systematically persecuted Christians across the entire Roman empire. And the uh, Roman historian Sanetian, I think I'm saying that name right, said that Domitian instituted once a year that every Roman citizen would have to go into his temple, wherever the closest temple was in the province of Rome, every Roman citizen would have to pinch incense from the altar, cast it into the fire, and declare Domitian et des, or Domitian is my master, my God, and my Lord. This brings a whole nother level to where Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if anyone wishes to be saved, they must be clear, Jesus is Lord. 
And so don't think that the Roman Senate and the Roman providence loved Domitian. They actually were overjoyed at his death. And once he finally died, uh, they threw a big party. They rejoiced and publicly condemned his name. They publicly condemned his name. And in fact, here's an ancient artifact found in Philippi, Greece. And I'm going to read what the inscription says onto you and tell you why they condemned his name and what they tried to do uh, to his name in history. This, this inscription reads like this. To the emperor of Aspian Augustus, father of the country, to Titus Caesar. And then right here, this chiseled out spot that you can kind of see on the screen is supposed to say Domitian. But they tried to literally remove his name from history. Every artifact that they could find with Domitian, they were like, chisel that thing off because this guy was ridiculous. To say all of that, you're thinking, okay, what in the world does this have to do with anything? All right? And John, to say this, John is in his 90s. He's seen the Roman Empire come into power, lived through it all. So he's got some weight that he can throw around in the words that he can impart wisdom to on these churches, that he's on a prison island because of the name of Jesus, and he's yet in persecution by Domitian. So meaning that he's on a prison island, meaning that he's lost every right to be called a Roman citizen. He's lost all his wealth, all his land, everything that once belonged to him has been taken from this, by the state. And other believers of Jesus, John's a pastor in the city of Ephesus, he was until he went, got put in the island, on the prison island. And so he's thinking about these other believers, knowing that they are going to be put to the test, knowing that their feet are going to be held to the fire just like his was to pinch incense in the altar and says, Domitian is my Lord. And for John, pay taxes to the emperor, cool. Give him honor, cool. Declare him Lord, only Jesus gets that. And so for John, with this in his mind, this is what he says. Verse 10, Revelation 1, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now that phrase at the very front of that verse, on the Lord's day, uh, some scholars believe that's just the day of worship, but this potentially could be the day that all Roman citizens would have to go into the temple of Domitian, pinch incense and say, Domitian et des, a foreshadowing of the ultimate day that will come in Revelation where every human being on the earth will have to make a choice of who is not just the Lord of your lips, but the Lord of your life. And John is making a very clear point here that he's made that decision and that's why he is where he is. That Jesus is Lord. And he says that he's in the spirit, but that doesn't mean that he's in a trance. That doesn't mean that he's just seeing things in his mind's eye, that he's having a vision of sorts, because he gives us some very clear, physical, tangible uh, words that help us see this. So he says, I heard a voice behind me. He gives a location of this voice, verse 12. And then it says, he, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I want to see who is speaking to me. And when I saw, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I know some of you are thinking like, are we in Aladdin now? We got golden lampstands everywhere? No, that's not the case. And so you, you have the question like, what are these lampstands? What do they represent? Well, it's a good question because the text actually tells us. Skip down to verses 19 and 20 where John's given two instructions. Write down what you see and here's the meaning. 
right here. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. Here's our answer. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there's our answer right there. Seven stars equal the angels or messengers to the churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now you're like, okay, seven. There's like seven, 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 seven. Like, why is seven? Well, seven's all over the book of Revelation, and seven is representation of the number to mean fullness or completeness. So were there literally seven stars? Yes, there were seven messengers. But I, I believe that it's also symbolic of the fact that it is representative of the fullness of God's messengers. Were there seven lampstands? Yes, because there were seven cities. We saw it on the map. But it's also representative of the fullness of God's churches, the fullness or completeness of God's people. That's why this book is relevant for this church today and every church that reads it and listens to it and does what it says today. But the most important thing that we could notice is see who John sees. The lampstands are important, the stars are important, but this person is most important. Verse 13, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Drew told us last week, if we really wanna understand the book of Revelation, we have to understand our Old Testament well. The Son of Man is a title from the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Let's read a few verses from that chapter now. It says, Daniel says, from his vision, in my vision at night I looked, and before me was one like a Son of Man, O coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all nations, and people from every language worshiped him. His dominion or rule authority is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The son of man was also Jesus' favorite title for himself in the gospels that we see in Old Testament and New Testament from beginning to end, that Jesus is the one who has all authority and deserves all worship. And this is the picture that John sees. Now, I want to set this up before we read it. Remember who John is. He's grown up with Jesus. He's walked with Jesus on the earth. He was the one who lounged beside Jesus the night before Jesus was crucified. He's the one who sat with Jesus on the shore bank, when, when Jesus had resurrected from the dead and was eating breakfast with Peter. That's the John-Jesus relationship. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved the most. He was in Jesus' closest circle. He's seen Jesus in so many ways. But Jesus knows John needs to see him like this, and this is how he sees him. One like the Son of Man was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest the hair on his head was white like wool white as snow his eyes were like blazing fire his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace his voice was like the sound of rushing waters and in his right hand he held seven stars Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. 
and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now let's notice what John noticed. First, his clothing. The, the robe is probably symbolic of the Old Testament high priest whose job or his duty was once a year going into the most holy place in the temple offering sacrifice for the people to cover for their sin for that year. And Jesus, as the greatest high priest, did one time what was a payment for all people for all time who would call on his name and be saved. So that's why he has the golden sash around his chest, which is the position for completion. That Jesus' work is finished. It's done. His atoning sacrifice, it's been paid for. And he resurrected from the dead. So his work is finished. Now notice, John notices his appearance. We see the word like all throughout this passage of scripture. And that word is for a metaphor. And what John is simply doing is giving us the best earthly comparison that words could put into picture, right? That's why he says, he's like, when I heard him talk, it was like a trumpet. When I heard him talk, it was like rushing waters. When I looked at his hair, it was like white and pure like wool or snow. And man, when I looked into his eyes, it was like I was gazing into a blurring, burning fire. And I looked down at his feet and they were so sturdy and strong. They were like bronze in a furnace. And man, when you just look at his face, it was like I was staring into the sun that was shining and all its brilliance. That's the best way I could describe it. So John is painting with words in the best way he knows how the beauty, the glory, and the power that is he is witnessing before his very eyes. Next, he notices what's in Jesus' possession or in his control. He says in his right hand were seven stars, and those are the messengers or angels to the churches. Now he's in his right hand because he's controlling those messengers, those angels are taking and delivering in Jesus' authority, in Jesus' power, not their own message, not in their own power. Jesus is controlling them, and he is sending them to those churches. And also notice in his possession is a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, you may have the question of, like, is this a literal sword coming out of his mouth, or is this just representative of the, the words that he is speaking? And I don't know. I think either would be appropriate, right? Because from the Old to the New Testament, we see words being compared to a, a knife or a sword or a dagger. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates something from nothing by the power of his word. In the book of Isaiah, we're told that Jesus is going to come again and destroy his enemy by the power of his word. Hebrews 4.13 says the word of God is like a double-edged sharp sword. So either way, if it's a literal sword coming out of his mouth, wow. If it's just his words, still, wow. Amen. Now, notice his, finally, his position, where Jesus is. Verse 13, back to the top of that again. Among the lampstands. I, I don't love this rendering of this word for among. So I put in your notes there and on the screen, the New American Standard Bible, which is a super literal translation that says he's in the middle. It's literally what that word means, in the middle. 
So if these churches facing persecution were wondering, has Jesus just paid for the atoning sacrifice for our sins, left us and went to heaven and said, guys, I did my job, figure it out. The answer is no, he has not. That he is in the middle of his churches. That today, where's Jesus? By the power of God's Holy Spirit, he is in the middle of his churches. That he has not left us, he is right here with us. During persecution, heartache, trial, good and bad, he is with us. And to that, John responds like this, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me. Remember, creator of the universe, savior of the world, John's best friend who died the death that he deserved, risen in power, bends down to a John laid out on his face like a dead man, places his hand on his shoulder to say these words. Do not be afraid. Remember what John has faced on a prison island for the testimony of Jesus. Who's talking to him? Lost everything. And these are the words he receives from Jesus. Do not be afraid. Because why? I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And if that's true, it changes everything. Not just for John, but for you and I today. We say a lot at church, a lot of times, we say, you're never too young to worship Jesus. We just highlighted kids. We love kids ministry and youth ministry. But I just want to put a footnote out there and say, you're never too old either. John's 90, and he falls down and worships Jesus. You're never too old to fall at Jesus' feet. You never know too much. Never let your knowledge outpace your obedience to Jesus. Because you and I need to see Jesus just as much as John did. We need to fear this guy in holy reverence and power, run from our sin and cling to him. We need to be encouraged if we're in a struggle. We have this guy on our side. The one with pure white hair, eyes like fire, words like a knife, feet like bronze. He's he's the one we're following. We're on his team. I'm following him wherever he goes. Be encouraged. Because the reality is in our lives and in the book of Revelation, what gets our attention shapes our direction. What gets our attention shapes our direction. You're going to see that truth all throughout the book of Revelation. You're going to see that truth be played out in your life every day. What has your attention has you. What you focus on has you. And Jesus knew before John wrote a letter to try to encourage the churches that were facing heartache and trials. Jesus knew what Domitian was doing. He knew how evil that guy was. He knew it all. 
And, and he didn't start off his, his where it's like, hey, I, I know what you're going through. I know Domitian. I know all that. No, he says, just look at me. Fix your eyes on me. Jesus knew before John wrote a letter to churches or before churches even heard a rebuking word, they needed to see Jesus in all his power. John had seen Jesus as a toddler, as a baby. He'd grown up with him his whole life. He'd heard Jesus teach. He'd sat with Jesus. He'd ate with Jesus. He'd probably nap beside Jesus. But what he needed most in this moment, right now in his life, was to not see Jesus in any other way than what he currently is. High, lifted up in all his power, all his might. He needed to see that picture of Jesus. Fiery eyes, Jesus. Feet like bronze, Jesus. Mouth like a sword, Jesus. And hear these tender, loving words. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and hell itself. What else is going to take you in your life? What else is going to fix your eyes on? What else is going to have your attention? I know you're struggling. I know your back's against the wall. And some of you this morning, wherever you may be, may feel that exact same way. That your back's against the wall because of a new protocol that just came down at work. Or an opinion your family member may have. That your back's against the wall. But take heart. Be encouraged. Focus on Jesus. Fix your gaze on this guy. Don't let anything else steal your joy. Take up your brain space or have your attention. It's not worth it. Because when you know who Jesus is and what he has done, you no longer desire to live for comfort, for self, for power, or anything else. You take heart what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And during this waiting period, we have one mission. Make disciples. Not disinfect Christians. We make disciples. We go all in because of this guy. The one who paid the price. The one who counted the cost and did it on our behalf for us, did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We don't do what Batman did. I know you were wondering how that was coming back, right? So we think about Bruce Wayne, how he became Batman. He looked out into the world and experienced so much suffering, heartache, and heartbreak because he couldn't protect the people he loved the most in this world. So his conclusion to solve that problem was he was going to become the thing that he hated the most. Evil. And the way that he would protect the people he loved the most was by coming a greater evil than the evil that existed in the world. It got so bad to the point that as you watch those movies that the people who actually love him the most have to distance themselves from him. 
because he had become the thing that he hated. Yet, we serve a God. We serve a Savior, Jesus, who knew no sin, paid the price for us, and overcame the darkness that exists within each one of us. If we follow Him with all that we are, if we lock our gaze on Him, we have nothing to fear. No matter what changes or challenges come our way, we have nothing to fear. So your simple application this week is this. Get a note card, get uh, your phone out, and write this verse. Make it the lock screen or your screensaver. Tape it up to your bathroom mirror. Put it on your car windshield, whatever. Do whatever you need to do to do this task. Read these words from Jesus every single day this week. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And as you've read those, and as you're going to read those, all week, every day this week, you're going to read those verses. The question that you wrestle through is this. In light of these truths, how is Jesus calling me to live in response? In light of these truths, who Jesus is, what he has done on my behalf, how is he calling me to live in response? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Jesus, thank you. There's no other words that we could say that could do it better, even though we wish there were. Thank you that you are the one that deserves all worship, honor, glory, and power. Help us fix our eyes on you. Help us see you in this study of Revelation, because if we get anything else out of it than our, than our eyes fix on you, we've missed the point. Help us, Jesus. And help us live out this truth of fixing our eyes on you and giving you our full and undivided attention. In Jesus' name, amen.